Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. You're welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at takingstockNT. Coming up on today's programme, Boris Johnson's authority was fundamentally undermined this week by his own rebellious MPs as the art of scraping through finally run its course for this British Prime Minister. Don't underestimate the degree of relationship change we're seeing. We'll hear from Accenture's global chief about shifts in our relationship after almost two years of unprecedented disruption. And we'll speak to the founder of Gigable, a company that's linking delivery drivers directly with business and improving their conditions here in Ireland and in the UK. But first up today, an egregious lobbying act by Owen Patterson, a Tory MP, was followed not only by a cover-up, by an astonishing attempt by a Prime Minister to regularise the practice, and it caused this week's by-election in North Shropshire. But it's just one in a long line of political blows for the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Also behaviour by senior Downing Street staff and Tory party workers that would rival the best party planners in London. Plus his own predilection for fine interiors and nice holidays. The entire debacle would be funny were it not so utterly tragic given the enormity of the public health crisis that they were attempting to manage at the time. I'm joined now from London by George Parker of the Financial Times, who's going to help us try and make sense of what's been happening this week. George, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. George, before we get your assessment of where Boris Johnson stands in his leadership and indeed his premiership now, you might just start by giving us a run through of what's been happening this week. (laughs) Well, it's been a it's been a sort of very dramatic um very dramatic week here in Westminster. We've had a massive rebellion against Boris Johnson by his own MPs, 100 or so of them voting against the government on a major public health issue, um, so measures to t- tackle coronavirus. Um, and the biggest rebellion of Boris Johnson's premiership so far, huge, it's about a half of all the backbenchers in his party voting against the government line. And of course, that follows on for a couple of weeks of grim headlines for the Prime Minister regarding parties held in Downing Street last year, uh, in breach of coronavirus restrictions. And that comes on top of the previous debacle involving Boris Johnson trying to sort things out for a corrupt former Conservative minister and um, and basically sort of blowing up in his face as well. So we've had about six weeks of just non-stop bad news for the Prime Minister, capped off with the fact we're in the middle of a pandemic and interest rates have just gone up as well, adding to a cost of living squeeze. So things not looking too bright for the for the PM at the moment. Yeah, not looking good for him. Let's examine um, his place within his own party first. He's always had a core group of followers, those who are sedulously wedded to getting Brexit done. Then there's those older Tories who seem embarrassed by him, like some enfant terrible who suddenly gotten hold of the family silverware, but uh, they'll stick with him. And then there's a third group of people who have always seen him as a big electoral asset, like a show pony for the party. Where does it leave him within his own party after this week's events? He's in a very weak position in his own party. Um, you're right, in the past people have stuck with him, um, for example, over Brexit. Well, Brexit's now sort of not quite in the rearview mirror, but a lot of the work on Brexit was already done. And funnily enough, even the Brexiteers didn't really entirely trust Boris Johnson on Brexit. They always rather suspected he might have 
back Brexit just as a political manoeuvre to ingratiate himself with mm. the Tory right. I mean, one of the interesting things about Boris Johnson is he doesn't really have a band of loyal supporters, um, partly because he doesn't really have any fixed political beliefs. So whereas someone like Margaret Thatcher might have a band of sort of hardcore, low-tax, ideological free marketeers, Boris Johnson doesn't really have that. Um, and in the course of the last few weeks, he's basically alienated virtually everyone in his party. Um, he retreated on a few on a promise to build a brand new rail line to the north of England that alienated a lot of people in the so-called Red Bull seats in the north. He's presiding over the biggest tax burden in the UK since 1950. So he's lost the support of lots of right wingers. The left wing and the Tory party don't like him because of Brexit. So basically, he doesn't have a huge bedrock of support in the party. What he has and what keeps him in his job is this proven track record as an election winner. You know, he won two elections in London as London mayor in a city which is generally regarded as a Labour city. He won the Brexit referendum and then he delivered the biggest Conservative majority in a generation in 2019, an 80-seat House of Commons majority. So he's a proven winner. And at the moment, Tory MPs are looking at him and thinking, is he still a winner? Mm. And the jury's out on that. The moment they decide he's become a liability, they will turn on him in a brutal and very speedy manner. But I think, don't think we're quite there yet. Yeah, now these events, as you say, may not topple uh, Boris Johnson. They do mark a sort of a turning point. But I wonder, does he have the capacity to to understand that? Can he actually take stock of the situation? I'm referring to the, the, the speech he gave at that uh, 1922 committee where they seem to find him very impressive when he was talking about COVID-19 and, and how they would tackle uh, Omicron. But when it came to all of the other issues, he referred to them as flaky stories. Do you think he's just going to try and get over this and continue as he normally does? Or will he make fundamental changes at Downing Street after this? Well, it's that's what's been urged on him by many Conservative MPs. They think he needs to be managed. He needs a new team around him. He needs a, some people with grey hair in number 10 to tell him what to do. And that's basically what happened when he was running City Hall as London Mayor. He did delegate a lot to other people. But in the end, you know, if there's a problem, the problem is Boris Johnson, not the people around him. You know, he's never really going to change. He's been in public life for 25 years. People know what they're getting with Boris Johnson. His view basically, I mean, I, I wouldn't discount the idea of him making a few changes in Downing Street in the new year. Um, but, you know, what his appeal is the fact that he doesn't sort of play the normal Westminster game. He, mm. he appeals over the heads of people in his party, people at Westminster, people like me, straight to the voters. And that's been extremely successful in the past. And he thinks that a lot of this stuff is flaky stuff, which will blow over and is a, an obsession of Westminster people. And in the real world, people will care at the next election about whether he's delivered on things like sort of spreading prosperity around the country uh, and so on. So, look, I mean, he, he's, he's never going to change. And that's, you know, maybe his strength or it may be his fatal weakness. We'll find out in the next few weeks, I suspect. Were you surprised, George, by the number of backbenchers who were, were willing to revolt against uh, the vote on the COVID-19 passport measures? I felt one of the most dangerous things in all of this was the sort of collective suspicion that everything he does uh, around COVID-19 has an ulterior motive and it's actually just about his political survival. But were you surprised at the sheer scale of, of the number of backbenchers who were willing to vote against him? I was I was astonished, to be honest. I mean, there have been speculation that maybe... Set, I think people accounted about 70 Tory MPs that said they were concerned about this specific measure, which was about introducing COVID passes to get into nightclubs and other mass events. 
And so people thought maybe 70 or so MPs at the uppermost might vote against the government. But 100, it wasn't just people like me who were surprised. It was the Conservative government whips whose job it is to know exactly what people are going to do. I mean, that's another example of the shambles of this administration that a lot of MPs weren't even contacted by their whip to find out how they were going to vote. And as a consequence, Boris Johnson was completely blindsided. He went to that meeting with Tory MPs you mentioned earlier, the so-called 1922 Committee of All the Backbenchers. There was some polite banging of the desks, which is a traditional thing they do when the Prime Minister comes in. And everything seemed to be going okay. And Boris Johnson came out of the room looking reasonably happy. And one of his ministerial colleagues came out and told the waiting journalists, including me, that the revolt was hemorrhaging was the word they used. And then literally an hour later, 100 MPs voted against the government on a massive public health issue. It's an extraordinary thing. Yeah, and an extraordinary um, amount of criticism about that WHIP's office. I, I was thinking when I was reading it that maybe they should get their party planners into the WHIP's office. They seem to be far more successful in <laughs> gathering people together. If you've just joined us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and we're talking to George Parker from the Financial Times, who's the political editor there. George, um, For two and a half years nearly now, people have treated all of these scandals and missteps by Boris Johnson and sometimes lies with a shrug of the shoulders and a phrase like that, that's Boris. Maybe in the same way that the Americans factored in uh, all the problems with Trump. But the the current Tory sleaze and and how these uh, parties have been dealt with, um, they've affected the party and the support of Boris, as we said, how is it affecting the public? What's his standing in the opinion polls now? Um, it's it's taken a nosedive. Um, his his approval ratings are at a record low. Um, I think the last time I looked, they were about minus forty. Mm. Um, so his popularity in the public has has nosedived. It, it it picked up earlier in the year during the rollout of the um, vaccine program, the first rollout of the vaccine program, which is, as you know, quite successful over here. Um, world beating, I think Boris Johnson would have uh, would say about it. Um, but so, since then, the his the poll ratings have have gradually declined and they've gone down much more quickly in the last few weeks ever since we had this parliamentary sleaze scandal followed by the party scandal. Um, so his ratings with the public are very poor and probably just as ominously for Boris Johnson, his approval ratings with party activists, conservative members is also down very sharply. He's um, now in negative territory in the polls that are done of party activists, whereas people like um, Liz Truss, the foreign secretary, is about plus 80, to give you something like an idea. So he, he's, a, he's, become, he's become unpopular in the party as well as in the country. Now, that's, that doesn't mean that it's irreparable because he has bounced back in the past. But at some point, you think, well, have people now seen through him? Mm. You know, or to use Keir Starmer, the Labour leader's phrase, do people not find the joke funny anymore? Mm. So those are those are things that I think people will be mulling over Christmas. But people often say, you know, is he going to be finished before Christmas? It's very difficult, I think, to organise a coup from your constituency home with the tinsel up and doing your Christmas shopping. So I don't think anything's going to happen to him this side of uh, the new year. But if things go on like this for another couple of months, he'll be in really serious trouble. Yeah, and maybe if he had to bring Parliament back to do more restrictions or have more votes around uh, dealing with with the COVID-19 pandemic, that might give uh, reason for more... um, I suppose, opposition within his own party to, to him or to more measures? Yes, definitely. And that, that, would be a, that would be a very difficult moment if he has to come back. And, and actually quite a serious moment for the country where you've got, you know, the medical advisors to the prime minister mm. saying that we're heading for this really serious spike in the Omicron variant. 
and a load of Tory MPs who basically opposed new restrictions to deal with it. My guess is what he'll try to do is just hope that people, by their own volition, start to stay behind, stay indoors and not not socialise. And we're already starting to see that. I mean, the whole it already feels like even without a formal lockdown being announced, it's almost a lockdown by stealth because people can see the figures and they know what's going on and um, they don't want to get COVID before Christmas. You mentioned um, Keir Starmer there a second ago. Now, he used the opportunity this week to... Uh... To, 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 to use his party support to kind of do a State of the Nation address. How do you think he's um, come out of this week? Well, I mean, compared with Boris Johnson, certainly um, more positively. Um, I mean, Keir Starmer's big challenge is to establish in people's minds the idea that he might be a plausible prime minister in waiting. So his address to the nation on television, which, by the way, the broadcasters had to allow him to do in response to Boris Johnson's own address to the nation, it was very noticeable that Keir Starmer was there with a union jack behind him um, talking about mm. the Labour Party acting in the national interest. And it's, I'm sure your listeners know this, but the Labour Party supported Boris Johnson's new COVID measures, even when these 100 Tory MPs weren't supporting it. So, you know, for Keir Starmer, that's the important thing is to convince people he's a responsible, reliable uh, p- prime minister in waiting, a sort of very big distinction between him and, of course, Jeremy Corbyn, who was his predecessor. But the thing about Keir Starmer is that, you know, he doesn't yet and maybe never will, um, has, he hasn't, he's not established a sort of bond with the British people or any sort of great sort of great enthusiasm for Keir Starmer out there in the country, which is another reason which um, why Boris Johnson is probably slightly less vulnerable than many people think. But maybe if there's another year of this type of activity for uh, Boris Johnson and he becomes less popular, people may look to a more sort of a stable politician who's less exciting and, and, and Keir Starmer actually could leverage some gain from this. I think that's true. I think that's the golden rule of all politics. It's my only rule of politics, actually. Going, all the time I've been covering politics, you always go from an interesting stroke, charismatic prime minister to a boring one. Uh, <laughs> it's, because if you think about all the way back through British politics, you go from Margaret Thatcher, who was probably excessively interesting, to John Major, it was very boring. Then to Tony Blair, it was interesting. Then to Gordon Brown, it was boring. Cameron was interesting. Theresa May was boring. And now we're into ultra-interesting Boris Johnson. So I think you're right. I think the next prime minister will be someone who's boring, someone who will bring a bit of stability and, you know, get get politics out of people's lives and just sort of get on with the job. And then in the end, people get fed up with boring politicians and want someone who's charismatic. So it's <laughs> a, there's a cycle. But you're right. Keir exactly. Starmer could, be, could benefit from that. Equally, the Tories could throw Boris Johnson overboard and appoint one of their own uh, people to be the next boring prime minister. It could be someone like um, Rishi Sunak, for example, or Jeremy Hunt. Yeah, I think that pattern is is worldwide. And we'll hope that Joe Biden's yeah. not listening into this <laughs> into this show. <laughs> um, George, before I let you go, we have to return to our own uh, issues here. And what of Brexit and the Northern Ireland Protocol? That seems to have taken a back seat at the moment. It does, although it's um, the talks have been going on this this week in in Brussels um, between. Um, David Frost, the UK negotiator, and Maris Sefcovic, the European Commission negotiator. And it feels like a Christmas truce is sort of in the air. Nothing's going to be resolved on this, this this side of Christmas. But it's very interesting that British government now is showing real signs of making concessions. And it's time that it actually wants to close this argument down. It's causing immense damage to its rela- to the UK's relationship with the Biden administration in Washington. It's damaging our relationship with our European partners, particularly the French. It's, there's no votes in, in it for Boris Johnson and having Brexit still hanging around as an issue. So my my sense is that both sides now just want to 
close this down early in the new year if they possibly can. And one significant thing that the UK government's indicating is that this big demand that they had about removing the European Court of Justice yes. from any role in Northern Ireland now seems to be being put very much on the on the back burner uh, and the government accepting it. And in the end, the ECJ could still have a role in arbitration on European points of European law. So I think there's some quite... Oh, the other the other concession I should mention is that previously Boris Johnson said it should be as easy to trade between Birmingham and Belfast as it is to trade between Birmingham and Bristol. Well, now the language has shifted and they're talking about things almost as easy to trade between Birmingham and Belfast as between Birmingham and Bristol. So it's sort of recognition that some sort of checks will be required at those Irish seaports. Yeah, and language is very important, as we saw as well, in relation to the booster. It was about who would be offered a booster as opposed to who would get it before the end of the year. I think you're right. Maybe there are too many battles on too many fronts and Brexit uh, is is not working for that domestic uh, advantage in the way it has in the past. And also... One of their large offerings is their success of delivering Brexit and getting Brexit done. And, and the more they they continue this row of the Northern Ireland Protocol, particularly on things like the ECB, it just seems that they're not getting it done and it's not sustainable. George, it's never dull. Thank you very much for joining us again today. Um, that's George Parker, who's the political editor for the Financial Times. George, thank you very much. Pleasure. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. After almost two years of chronic disruption to business and all aspects of how we function as a society, Accenture's latest interactive global report reveals how systems and societies have been fundamentally altered forever. And we're joined now from the UK by Mark Curtis, who is Head of Innovation and Thought Leadership at Accenture. Mark, you're very welcome and thanks for joining us today on News Talk. Hi, Mandy. Thanks for having me. So, Mark, you've been doing this report for a number of years now. Can you tell us about how it's conducted and what it's designed to do? Sure. So what we're trying to look at is the space where humans, technology and business all interact and understand what's going on there in the wider world and how those trends will affect the way in which we go about designing, building uh, and delivering new products and services and experiences experiences to, to customers. So that's our kind of remit. We tend to look at about one to three years out. So we're not doing future gazing, you know, 10 years out. Fun though that is, that's not our remit. And the way we put it together is pretty different because we've got 2000 designers globally in about 35 cities. I mean, literally right around the world. And we go and get every single one of them to put down their ideas about what they think is happening, which is going to affect the way in which we do our work and our, our clients are going to be taking stuff to market. And then we aggregate all of that together over a period of a couple of months, late summer, early autumn. And we do what I call pattern recognition. And we go, what's going on here? And we begin to cluster stuff together. We throw some out because there's no evidence for it. We bump other stuff up because we can see there's a lot of evidence for it. And we cluster them into themes and then find a way to articulate them, which hopefully is coherent and makes sense and provides, if you like, a guidance system for thinking about what do I need to think about when I'm thinking about innovation and and and, and designing new stuff for, for customers over the next year or two years. Yeah, and I suppose my big takeaway from looking at the research that you've just published is that message about do not underestimate the degree of relationship changes that we're seeing in business. So you've obviously mm. uh, seen some huge shifts. Could you just talk us through the main findings of your report? 
definitely and and that is exactly what we're thinking and uh at this year um and i you know hardly need to point out that with omicron um you know a lot of that is about to get is being doubled down on right now so the that period of instability in terms of thinking how do we think about how people are reacting that period of instability looks set to continue for some time to come mm -hmm. so there's five things coming out of that the first is people are redefining who they are and they they want they're grabbing the sense of self a sense of agency for themselves and they're looking for new ways to define themselves they're getting very comfortable with saying who i am look at tom daly knitting at the olympic games for example um you know they, they're turning up and they're going take me as i am but they're also beginning to look for new ways of doing things and, and there you get um what we call the side hustle economy which is really booming right now mm. and that also is you know com combined with the great resignation so there's a lot of signals here about how people want to see themselves which uh, which we really need to pick up on. The second big point we're talking about is uh, what we call the end of abundance thinking. And what we're really saying here is the supply chain and other disruption we've seen over the last nine months or so, does that open the door to thinking about our fundamental assumption that we can always have more, make more, dig up more? Is that now a place, is there a window that's been opened by that massive disruption? You know, inflation, worker shortages, climate change disasters, supply chain disruptions, all of that. Mark, Mark, Does that, that open the can, window to really... Can I just come in yeah. there, Mark? That that actually, that part of your, your analysis, the end of abundance thinking, struck me as something that could be hugely positive, that we're finally having an understanding of our limitations and the implications of our consumer-centric lifestyle. Um, did you see that as a positive as opposed to something that's... Uh, that's a really interesting um, piece of feedback. Yes, we're very much seeing it as a positive. I think we have to see, we think it's a trend, or we wouldn't have published it. We have to see people acting on it, but we believe the companies and we're seeing a, an uptick a massive uptick of interest in sustainability from all sorts of organizations and i believe that they're coming under significant push from what i call the five forces which are employees who are saying what are we doing our shareholders same question the courts who are judging and governments who are actually changing legislation in order to make sustainability a priority the fifth force not often remarked on is ceo's children because they're doing the same thing. They're saying, mummy, what are you doing? Really? So that's that's interesting that they're calling them and questioning them themselves. Correct. And and, and that that I think is those two things that those five forces acting on businesses and the window opened up where we have to examine our supply chains and understand, do, can we go on like this? Because, you know, we can't always have abundance in the same way as we've imagined it over the last hundred years. And maybe now is a turning point. Mm. One of the other trends that you uh, highlight is the next frontier. Uh, and we talk about that dreaded, that word I dread, the metaverse. <laughs> <laughs> Are we just uh, head headlong into a more artificial world where there's nothing we can do to stop it? And... Um, our information, our existing layers of information, our interfacing uh, with technology is just going to increase. So I think what we need to do, first of all, is try and define what the metaverse is in order to answer that question. Please. So the metaverse, the most important thing about the metaverse is that it is a place. 
we don't mentally think we're going to a website or going to an app, but we will go somewhere in the metaverse. It might be somewhere we are already, if it's a layer of information via augmented reality around us, or if it's a VR, if it's a virtual real world, or it doesn't have to be in, in immersive, it could be on a screen, but it's definitely somewhere we go. The second thing about it is that it's got a population. So again, I don't really generally look at an app and think, are there other people there? Except in some circumstances, like Peloton or Zwift, where actually it matters a great deal there are other people there. Mm. But I would say that both Peloton and Zwift are early examples of metaverses, which people are already engaging with. So it's place, it's population. The third P, I'm afraid there are four Ps here. The, the third P is that it's got product. So again, you don't really think of the internet as somewhere where you own product, but it's going to be. It is already with NFTs. Now, there's some issues with NFTs and might be a hype bubble. We don't think so because we think what's going on here is a fundamental need people have. They want to actually embrace scarcity because scarcity is where you get value. And then the fourth thing is people will go there for a purpose. You know, I talked about Zwift a moment ago. That's a virtual world I go to in order to do indoor cycling. And I want other people that manage most definitely a place. And there are products in there like the bicycle I ride and the shirts. And, you know, they're not actually doing e-commerce yet, but they should be. Mm. So if all of those four things work, then the metaverse will become a thing. And I think you're absolutely right to ask the question you did. The ethical dimension of the metaverse is something we need to address now. And that includes over usage, uh, too much immersion. It includes bad actors doing, you know, we've seen it with the internet already. You know, people do bad stuff. And a lot of companies have been spending a lot of time trying to sort that out. We will see the same things in the metaverse. And, and we need to act on that now, not wait 20 years and then start getting fretful about it. Another trend that's highlighted is the issue of handle with care. And um, in this segment, you don't just talk about physical care, which I suppose we can all now identify with because it's been about, you know, minding each other, minding ourselves, minding our physical health uh, and those of uh, the health of those around us. But you also mentioned digital care. Is that a reflection um, to go back to your former point that where our lives are moving more from the virtual from the real physical space into the virtual space? Like it or not, it is. And um, I think there's a very obvious reason for that, which is um, as soon as you start asking people to justify their to, to, to validate themselves using a health pass for COVID, which billions worldwide are now being asked to do. And as you probably aware, is extremely controversial in, in the UK and my country. As soon as you start asking for that, you're basically saying, look, digital is your route. I mean, I, I traveled to France a week ago and instead of showing everything on paper, which I did last time and, you know, the, the um, immigration officials tutted at me, I showed them everything on my phone. So my health identity is now wrapped into my phone. And I think that's irretrievable. And what we're beginning to see, I, I sat with a somebody um, I hadn't seen for about five years recently who ran a startup, which didn't quite work a few years back. And he was in the business of fitness wearables. Now he's running an app called Careology, and it's very successful. And it helps cancer patients feel more in control of their experience. And it connects up their support network so they can really easily stay on top of their treatment plans and updates. That app, Careology, 
is exactly what we're talking about. But again, it's digital because digital can do a, a good and needed job. If you've just joined us today, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Mark Curtis, who is Head of Innovation and Thought Leadership at Accenture. So, Mark, we're overhauling our relationship with brands as well. Could you talk us through some of your findings uh, on this issue? The key thing here is that the we call this this much is true because this is about truth. It's about trust. It's about confidence. And what we're seeing is that We've entered an era, we actually entered it 24 years ago when Google was founded. We've entered the era of questions. Can we ask questions all the time now? We expect answers very, very rapidly because they are to hand. And, and I, you know, and I think that increasingly we're asking questions of the things we want to buy at or around the point of purchase. What that means is that we're asking, what it also means is that we're asking new kinds of question. You know, we used to ask fairly simple questions like, what's the color? How big is the fridge? Um, you know, and then we began to want to know, you know, when might it be delivered? And then we wanted to know, and this is now much more recent, can I buy now and pay later? And now we want to know what's the carbon impact of buying this fridge? Or has it been ethically sourced? What about the workers in the factory? And as we increasingly ask these questions, we're basically bringing more and more questions to the interface just at the point when we're making purchase purchase decisions. And that's becoming, I think, a real design and actually strategic challenge through design for businesses to be able to find ways to answer the variety of questions people have in a really rapid and seamless way, possibly using conversation, almost certainly in our view, using artificial intelligence because that builds trust, particularly if you also provide third party information about what it is you're buying. There's a wonderful example of this coming out of Sweden. It's a company called Duconomy. They're a startup and they've partnered with MasterCard. They've created with MasterCard a new card called Do Black. What Do Black does is that it measures the carbon impact of everything you buy, literally. Now, this is post-purchase, not pre-purchase, but it's a signal. And the card cuts you off from spending, not when you reach your spending limit, though it may do that as well, but when you reach your carbon limit. Um, yeah, and that goes back to a point you were making about the children of CEOs challenging them. That generation that's coming next is building that into their evaluation. And so there is a new criteria that has to that companies have to think of. It's true. And they're mistrustful as well. Um, you know, they're worried about things. There's clear signs from the Edelman Trust Barometer that trust is a vanishing currency in the world, worryingly. And 80, 81% of shoppers say trust impacts their buying decisions, but only a third trust the brands they buy from. I think that's a big challenge we need to tackle. And it's a big challenge for brands also to try and uh, not just retain what they have, but to try and attract new people who have maybe higher standards than than we have. Um, yes. Mark, one other question I wanted to ask you was about this this notion in your research about me over we and the rise of individualism. Um, it sounds very like we've become quite self-serving. Have people become more introverted in the last year, more self-serving, more myopic, if you like? I don't know whether it's necessarily myopic. I think it's um, a an insistence that they put their agenda further forward than they were doing before. 
and questioning the things that they're doing and reveling in a sense of agency, which particularly, again, it's technology. Certain platforms are giving them, if you look at the creator economy in particular, certain platforms are giving them, which are enabling them to actually be themselves in different ways and likely as not make money as well. Um, but I think there is a challenge and this challenge is we've got to square off this problem. If it's all me and less we, what happens to teams at work? Um, if companies are competing, not so much with each other for talent, but with the other things that talent want to do with their lives, they've got to make some changes in order to make their environments more attractive to talent. But at the same time, the risk is there might be a long-term persistent effect on team dynamics, on really effective innovation, and actually on collaborative working overall, which are all systems that need a group to function, not just a bunch of individuals. Yeah, that retention of talent and developing talent is going to be a huge issue, I would think, for 2022 for, for many companies. On a final note, um, Mark, and it's not in relation to this research, but I know you have worked in the past and pioneered some technology around the mobile dating industry. Do you have any views on how the pandemic has or ha affected or will affect the introduction space? That's an interesting question. I haven't answered a question about mobile dating for a long time. I would so I, I'm I'm going to sort of slightly curve around the question by saying that I think one of the areas that will uh, begin to use the metaverse very very quickly will be introductions, will be dating. Um, so I think we will see. If I was at a dating company, I would be looking long and hard at the metaverse because the way in which we can represent ourselves in the metaverse is now considerably more realistic than anything we've been able to do before. Um, and again, that feeds back to my point about ethics is, uh, I, you know, I think dating, you know, is not an unethical industry, but there are always bad people out there as well, as I discovered when I ran a, a mobile dating company. Understanding how you control that in the metaverse will be very important. But the reason I'm saying that I'm now, I am going back to your question now is, the catalyst for the metaverse is a number of building blocks come together, but it's COVID. So people have just spent more time gaming and in the kind of um, really interesting environments that Roblox and Fortnite have been developing, where they're able to have entertainment and other things going on apart from just gaming. That's really been catalyzed, I think, by or accelerated probably is a better way to look at it by COVID. And I think that's going to happen again with Omicron, at least over the next few months. And I think that then will have um, a transformative effect on on the dating industry, which I think will, you know, will look at what's happening there and will will flock there. That's that's very interesting, Mark. And thank you for indulging us with your views on on the dating industry. I know, as you said, you you haven't been in that industry for a while, but it's very interesting to hear your perspective. Okay, well, I'm sure that we all recognise at least some of the issues which we spoke about from your research that affect affect our own lives and our business and all of our interactions and you can find that full report on the Accenture website but for now we'll have to leave it there that's Mark Curtis who is Head of Innovation and Thought Leadership at Accenture Interactive. Mark thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much as well. 
This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Now, Uber, Deliveroo and other online platform companies are going to have to reclassify some of their workers as employees under a new draft EU rule. It is meant to boost the working rights and the social rights of the drivers. And so what can we expect from the gig economy 2.0 and how do we create fair conditions for drivers and employees and businesses who are working with them. We're joined now to discuss these issues by John Ryan, who's founder of a company called Gigable. John, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. John, before we get uh, stuck into what Gigable is and what it's designed to do, could you just give us a bit of background about yourself? How did you get started in this area? Yeah, uh, actually, I, I did finance in, in UCC originally. I uh, spent a bit of time working as a stockbroker in Good Body Stockbrokers out of college. I was fortunate enough to have a bit of time working with Colin Hunt, who's current uh, CEO of AIB, obviously. Uh, after that, I had a, kind of an itch I used to scratch, and I, I joined uh, the Irish Army Cadets. I really wanted to challenge myself in a different way, um, and I think you can get a really unique experience and unique challenges in the defense forces and, and i had a great nine years uh, working there until around 2016 uh, when i retired as a captain uh, shortly after serving a, a tour in lebanon as well as in lebanon for six months so i had a kind of a mixed background before before actually i jumped into doing a, an mba with the in, in michael uh, smurfus graduate business school which was an amazing experience and a great kind of a segue from a military career into civilian life and, and a way to kind of help you adapt all those great so-called soft skills that you get in the defense forces into a kind of civilian context. From there, I worked with a, a tech startup in Dublin for around a year and a half. Um, and during that time, I, I had this idea for, for Gigable that really took hold. And I suppose any entrepreneur or founder out there who has an idea that they, they need to do it kind of, becomes all-consuming, something you become obsessed with and, and research and, and try to prepare for, you know, on your weekends and on your evenings off, uh, just it's something that you can't get out of your head. So, you know, after only a year and a half, I decided late 2018 to, to start Gigable and, and three years later, uh, here we are, we've, you know, got a great presence across Ireland and a nice nascent business as well in London. So a bit of a mixed background, but but all led me to, to where I am today with Gigable. Indeed, indeed. And we'll get into how Gigable operates in a second. But before we do, will you just uh, talk to us about the gig economy itself, how it works here in Ireland and across Europe? And can you just give listeners an idea of some of the challenges that are faced by those who are trying to work and manage their careers within the gig economy? Sure, yeah, I guess the gig economy has become kind of synonymous with food delivery and Uber for, for rideshare or taxi services in the last 10 years, really kind of spurred on by the revolution, I guess, and how we how we do things um, that was brought about by, by the release of the iPhone and, you know, really moving from the web as we experience it on a laptop or PC to experiencing the internet and apps through a phone. And that really kind of spawned the, the platform economy. And that's when the gig economy really grew out of, out of the possibilities and, and different avenues for essentially individuals, workers to access work opportunities through their phone. You know, um, most, most famously, of course, starting, starting with the likes of Uber, but prior to, to Uber and, you know, the likes of rideshare and delivery work, the gig economy is something that's been around for a long time in the, the freelance creative and designer space. 
and you know it's still alive and well and there's platforms out there like Fiverr and Upwork um, that you know people all over the world work together collaborate on different projects and, as and, freelancers and then along came the pandemic which um, yeah. caused an increase in demand in one sense um, and it created a new set of issues but that's where Gigable, I suppose, comes into play and its real value lies. Can you tell me a bit and our listeners a bit about Gigable and what's the idea? Yeah, essentially, and you mentioned in your previous question there about the challenges facing the industry. I guess, you know, at its heart, Gigable is trying to, to bring together the delivery community, be that the independent delivery drivers and riders or the independent restaurant owners themselves in a fair and equitable and I suppose a kind of decentralized marketplace. And by that, I mean, essentially, that we're not controlling the engagements that exist between restaurants and delivery drivers. They're freely engaging with one another based on transparency on profiles, transparency on rates of pay, but also, crucially, the difference between us and, and other platforms in this space is that we only operate off a, a shift model. And to your previous question about managing your work or managing your engagement with the gig economy, a lot of platforms work off an on-demand system, which essentially means you're only getting paid for orders that you deliver. With Gigable, we operate off a shift system. So if you're a delivery driver looking to earn an additional income uh, two nights a week, you know, on top of your, your day job, you can easily log into the app, see what's on offer locally, what the rates of pay are, what the length of the shift is. Let's say it's 5, 5 p.m. to 10 p.m. in the evening on a Friday and have that level of transparency and certitude about what you do, which obviously helps people to plan plan their, you know, plan their earnings through the platform. So it's it's essentially linking businesses up directly with the drivers on the one hand, and it's giving drivers more control of when they work. Exactly. Exactly. And, and it's all premised really on that, that word transparency, which, you know, is central and always has been central to the platform itself for too long in my opinion you know delivery drivers and riders have been just considered a commodity you know they come in they're kind of faceless and nameless they pick up the food from the restaurant they deliver it to the consumer and they provide an outstanding service by the way you know mm. you have to tip your hat to the great women and men that work in that industry and work very very hard and do an amazing job you know and also the platforms that spun up the work as well it, it is a kind of a bit of a phenomenon to be fair but I think the future of the, the gig economy delivery space needs a new model. It needs a model that's based on transparency and, and more certitude for drivers in terms of what they're earning. And so you can see the advantages here for, for drivers, certainly, and also for businesses. Uh, it's giving drivers a bit more confidence to work independently. And so far, what's your experience of the employers? Um, are they getting on board? Are business enthusiastic about this? Absolutely. I mean, there, there's a problem in the market in that delivery is exploding in popularity uh, and it's very, very difficult for restaurants to have a regular team of drivers, you know, even if they go for the employed model, which some businesses and restaurants try to do. It is essentially, you know, it's, qu it's quintessential gig economy work, the delivery space. It's often something that people do in addition to a day job. So when we provide a kind of a third way that's not through an aggregator, it's not employing um, teams of drivers and riders, which, as I said, is very challenging, but accessing a live network of independent drivers and riders who are there building up their profile, earning a rating after every shift or gig that they work, being paid well 
it creates a kind of an environment where there's a real reciprocity in that relationship and restaurants really want that drivers really want that and consumers as well often get forgotten about consumers really want that as well because deliveries become part of the consumer experience and it's part of the consumer experience that up until now it was a case of just get the food out the door any way you can whereas now i think restaurants want to be able to look at delivery drivers as part of their team but also be able to access that kind of fluidity of a live network which which really kind of uniquely positions gigable in the space yeah, and staffing has been a real issue for that mm. industry, not just for delivery drivers, but across the board for chefs and waiting staff. The uncertainty of it reached all elements of their businesses. If you've just joined us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and we're talking to John Ryan, who's founder of Gigable. John, I mentioned at the outset that there were EU proposals uh, which would regulate uh, the people who are working in the gig economy and uh, can you just talk to me about what implications that has for the industry and how uh, it has reacted to this ruling? Absolutely. I think, you know, the, the welcome part and for me and for Gigable, we welcome the announcements and the new rules that are coming into place. You know, they support the way we've set up our platform from day one anyway. But I suppose the best part about uh, what I read and in the news is the officials and the language coming from the officials is that they do not want to end the gig economy. It's not that they're setting out to just eliminate what is a very highly productive part of the economy and also crucial to a lot of services that we enjoy as consumers and a lot of businesses that, that are thriving and pay pay good money as well. That being said, there's an acknowledgement there that you know the, the playing field needs to be leveled there needs to be more equality in the space. And by that, I mean more genuine independence of the delivery community, that they can engage and control their work with the restaurants or platforms that they choose to, and that they have real control over their working hours and how they conduct their business, You know, which often isn't the case with many of the other platforms in the space. You're donning the uniform, you're checking in, and you're going and delivering food as and when the algorithm tells you to. I think that kind of model is probably not going to be sustainable in the future, but rather it's going to drift towards more of a, a shift-based model where the community themselves have a lot more control over the work that they partake in. So what are your numbers like now? Um, can you give us some figures about businesses that are signed up and um, drivers? Yeah, so we're primarily we're 90% Ireland based at the moment, but have a nice nascent business in London that uh, we're absolutely focused on growing next year. In Ireland and the UK, we've got around two and a half to 3,000 active drivers on a three month basis. So quite a lot. Uh, people kind of dip in and out of, of the platform as they need, which is exactly what it's designed for. In terms of restaurants, businesses then across the UK and Ireland, we've got about approximately 150 uh, restaurants, but again, 90% of those being in Ireland at this point in time. Well, um, it's very interesting and I'm sure you have plans for expansion next year. So um, we wish you the very best of luck with your venture, John. OK, we'll have to leave it there. That's John Ryan, founder of Gigable. John, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. We have a bit more time in the podcast, so there are extended conversations with our guests today. My thanks to today's guests and to the production team of Mick McCarthy, Simon Keane with Jojo Cardoza on sound.
Jonathan McRae's up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, enjoy the rest of your day.